0: Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, who is a God like you, for you have not left us in our sins, but you have sent your Son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins, to save us, to make us your children, so that all things are now ours in Christ. And so we pray, as we look now to your word, that you would please give us attentive minds, that you would give us uh, humble Uh, spirits and hearts desirous to submit to your word. We pray that you would give us eyes to see the glories of your son through this book of Micah. We love you, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please take out a copy of the scriptures and turn to the book of Micah. Uh, What we're going to try to do tonight is we are going to try to cover the entirety of of this minor prophet, uh, all seven chapters. But before we begin, I think it's helpful to know, helpful to realize that Micah is a collection of prophecies given by the prophet Micah. It is not a single message that was all given at the same time. And so if you just kind of read the book in a linear fashion from beginning to end, and you think it's just one continuous message... Uh, you're probably going to be confused because the book kind of switches back and forth. Uh, this, uh, this judgment and that judgment. Uh, you got the present, you got the future, uh, hopeful promises of redemption kind of scattered in between, interspersed within various judgments. Uh, and there's different ways to divide the book up. Uh, the smart guys seem to agree that the best way to do that is to see three cycles of judgment and hope. And so you've got chapters 1 and 2, and then you've got chapters 3 to 5, and then you've got chapters 6 and 7. But rather than going through the book kind of section by section in that order, uh, what we're going to do tonight is a little bit different. Uh, We're going to go through what I think are the four like primary themes in this book, Uh, the four kind of key takeaways from this book. And I trust that afterwards, uh, you will uh, read the book, read the book in its entirety, and kind of fill in any gaps that we might have left behind. So I want you to uh, keep your Bibles open tonight uh, to the book of Micah. We're going to be jumping around a lot uh, within the book. So let's start with a little bit of background and context. Uh, The book of Micah was written by Micah, uh, but what do we know about him? Really not that much. Uh, his name means who is like the Lord, and I want you to keep that in the back of your mind because that's a question that he's going to ask at the end of the book. And if you look at the opening line of the book, you'll see that he comes from this small town uh, in the southern kingdom of Judah called Morasheth, and he preaches in the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, who are kings of Judah. But as far as like the personal details go, that's about it. That's about all that we know about him. Now, in Micah's day, right, during the reigns of Jotham and Ahaz and Hezekiah, uh, the big thing, like the major concern of the Israelites, uh, both in the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, like the big thing was the Assyrians. Uh, Tiglath-Pileser and Shalmaneser and Sennacherib, right, those guys, uh, there was this constant threat of attack from the Assyrians. And during Micah's ministry, the Assyrians are going to destroy Samaria. They're going to destroy the capital of the northern kingdom, uh, and they're going to take the people of that northern kingdom captive. Micah actually uh, prophesies about that early in his ministry, and that comes true during his day. And so Micah's primary message, the primary message of the book, is to the remaining kingdom. It's to the southern kingdom of Judah and its capital of Jerusalem, So basically in light of what happened with Samaria, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish, right? Unless you repent, you're also going to see God's judgment in the form of foreign armies. And so with that background and uh, that context in mind, I want to look now at four major themes from this book. Uh, and these four themes are going to serve as our four points forward tonight. So point number one, Is the problem. The problem. I believe this is the sixth sermon in this series in the Minor Prophets, and so uh, hopefully by now you already know what the problem is, right? It's sin. Many of the Minor Prophets, right, the emphasis might be slightly different in each book, but many of them present God as a holy God who will judge sin. So the book of Micah is really no different. Uh, Micah spent a large part of his book denouncing the sin of his fellow Israelites. And there's one particular sin or one family of sins that Micah seems to draw particular attention to, and that's the people's greed. Like through Micah, God is going to particularly highlight the greed and the covetousness of his people, right? Those are like driving the sins of which his people are guilty. For example, look at chapter 2, verse 2. Uh, They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. Back then, remember, this is an agricultural society. Uh, For most people, like your land is your life. And so if you've ever read through the law, you know that God carefully prescribes rules for his people with regards to land. How it was going to be allotted, uh, how it was going to be passed on from generation to generation to keep the land in the family. And here comes these greedy and wicked people, and they're seizing lands from others, uh, exploiting the weak. If you look ahead to verse 9, you'll see that women and children were particularly victims, just completely disregarding all of God's laws on the land. So basically, you've got a nation full of King Ahab's, seizing land from the Naboth's around them. Here's another passage highlighting the people's greed. Look at chapter 6, verses 10 and 11. Can I forget any longer the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked and the scant measure that is accursed? Shall I acquit the man with wicked scales and with a bag of deceitful weights? So basically, you have this situation where in the markets... Uh, the scales, the measures, uh, the weights that were being used, well, they would shortchange customers through false weights and false balances. Basically, you pay for a pound, and you get 14 ounces. It's kind of like a couple of years ago, Burger King really sneakily changed their 10-piece nugget meal into an eight-piece nugget meal, thinking that nobody was going to notice. It's the same thing. Again, that is something that is explicitly prohibited in the law of Moses. Right? You shall not use unjust weights and measures. But again, it's completely disregarded by the Israelites in their greed. So you've got greed among the real estate guys, and you've got greed among the business guys, but at least we have the prophets, the mouthpieces for God. Right? Like At least they are honest. Well, not quite. Chapter 3, verse 5 Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths. And so when they're given something to eat, they cry peace. That's all you all got chicken lovers tonight, right? You want a, you want a good message, you want a, an uplifting message. I'm kidding. He's speaking about prophets here who are just in it for the money. They bring favorable messages only in exchange for payment. And they threaten God's judgment on those who don't. You thought the prosperity gospel was something new, but there's nothing new under the sun. And it's not just the prophets. The rest of the leadership is no better. Chapter 3, verse 11, its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Judges, priests, Prophets, like for all of them, it's just about the money. And what makes it even worse is the defiance. Look at the rest of verse 11. Yet they lean on the Lord and they say, is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. We're God's covenant people. The Lord is in our midst. You want proof of that? You look at Jerusalem, the city of God. You want proof of that? Look at the temple, the dwelling place of God. Never mind that King Ahaz actually shut the doors of the temple. Don't you know the promise that he shall be our God and we shall be his people? No disaster is going to come upon us. We are the covenant people of God. We are indestructible. We are bulletproof. We are untouchable. Point number one, the problem, and the problem as usual is that of sin. And the manifestation of that sin, the Micah really highlights the society as a whole, not necessarily every individual, but like at every level of society, land ownership, buying and selling, the prophets of God, the leadership of the people, every level of society is completely infected with greed and unchecked self-indulgence. Like Paul said, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. And so it was in Micah's day. Which brings us to point number two, the punishment. So it's in that societal context, uh, he's amongst the people who are just gripped by greed and they see no violation of God's law as too steep to get a couple of few extra shekels. It's in that context that God calls his prophet Micah to preach judgment, to preach punishment for those sins. Let's look at how he opens up the book with this powerful imagery that should have made the people kind of quake in their boots. Chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place, and he will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth And the mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. Kind of powerful judgment language. You've seen it already in some of the other minor prophets. But Micah Micah gets more precise with some specific judgments against the specific sins that the people were dealing with. Look at chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. You shall eat, but not be satisfied. There shall be hunger within you. You shall put away, but not preserve. And what you preserve, I will give to the sword. You shall sow, but not reap. You shall tread olives, but not anoint yourselves with oil. You shall tread grapes, but not drink wine. And so he's specifically addressing the sin of greed and covetousness. And he's saying that one of the judgments that's going to come is that all that you pursue and all that you obtain in your greed, well, it's going to come to nothing. Like that which you stole from your brothers, a foreign armies are going to steal from you. It's what's known as a futility curse. And it comes straight from Deuteronomy chapter 28, when Moses is giving the people the covenant curses. Deuteronomy 28, verses 39 and following, you shall plant vineyards and dress them, but shall neither drink of the wine nor gather the grapes, for the worm shall eat them. You shall have olive trees throughout all your territory, but you shall not anoint yourself with the oil, for your olives shall drop off. That's basically what Micah is saying here. And so you remember the arrogance of the people, right? It is not the Lord in the midst of us. No disaster is going to come upon us because we are the covenant people of God. And so Micah says, yeah, you're right. You are the covenant people of God, which means that if you live in utter rebellion to God, you're going to get these covenant curses. Point number two, the punishment. But at this point, we actually need to give Israel a little bit of credit because at least in the days of King Hezekiah, the people actually do hear Micah's warnings. This is one of those rare instances in which the people respond favorably in repentance to the prophet's warnings. How do we know that? Well, we know that from the book of Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah comes about 100 years after Micah, and look at what it says. Jeremiah 26, 18, the people say, Micah of Moresheph prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah. And then they quote Micah chapter 3, verse 12. And what happened in the days of Hezekiah as a result of Micah's preaching? Look at the very next verse, Jeremiah 26, 19. Did Hezekiah, king of Judah and all Judah, put him to death? The answer is no, they did not. Did he not fear the Lord and entreat the favor of the Lord? And did not the Lord relent of the disaster that he had pronounced against them? And so if you've read 2 Kings, you know that under King Hezekiah, there was reform. There was this genuine turning back to the Lord led by the king himself. And so you remember the story with the Assyrians and how God saves Jerusalem from the hands of Assyria. The angel of the Lord strikes down 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. But that repentance, that turning, well, it was a short-lived one because after Hezekiah comes the worst King that Judah ever had, Manasseh. And with the one exception of Josiah, like it's all bad kings from there on. And so even this repentance, uh, this forestalled judgment, well, it was only temporary. And here's the thing, the prophet Micah saw that. He saw that the people would eventually go right back to their sin and go right back to incurring judgment and punishment. Because Micah saw that more Covenant curses were coming, including the greatest of the covenant curses, the pinnacle of God's judgment against the nation of Israel. And I'm referring, of course, to the exile. Exile from the promised land. Micah chapter four, verse 10. writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor for now. You shall go out. From the city and dwell in the open country, you shall go to Babylon. So he is prophesying about the eventual exile of the southern kingdom of Judah to Babylon, which started in 605 BC and culminated in 586 BC with the destruction of Jerusalem. Indestructible Jerusalem was destroyed. And that too was something that Micah foretold Micah 3.12, therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field, Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins. So you've got the exile to Babylon, prophesied by Micah. You've got the destruction of Jerusalem, prophesied by Micah. And along with all of that, you've got the seeming end of the Davidic kingship. Look at Micah chapter 5, verse 1. Uh, muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod, they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. A siege is laid against us. It's referring to the siege of Nebuchadnezzar against the city of Jerusalem. And at the end of that siege, King Zedekiah, the last king of Judah, He's captured, but not only is he captured, he is completely humiliated. Remember what happened to him. His eyes are gouged out. He's led away in chains. He is this disgraced, a prisoner of war. That's what's being referred to in the second half of the verse. With a rod, they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. That was an expression for being completely and utterly humiliated, disgraced. Like we might say, a slap in the face. And so right there, Micah has prophesied about the darkest day in Israel's history. The covenant curses are at their climax here. The people, they're sent into exile to Babylon. Jerusalem and the temple, it's been completely destroyed. And even the Davidic king has been disgraced. He's been slapped in the face. He's been removed from the throne. And if you think about the last of those three, well, I mean, any thinking Israelite of that day, you had to wonder, were God's promises to King David, did those now come to an end? You know the promises I'm talking about. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, I will establish his throne forever. Well, now the throne is empty. The king has been disgraced. And so we're left wondering, what about the Davidic king? I think Micah's got that question on his mind even all the way in the beginning of the book. He's first pronouncing judgments in chapter one. Look at Micah 1.10. It's a subtle little hint there. Micah 1.10, tell it not in gath. Weep not at all. You're all good Bible students. You recognize that phrase. Tell it not in Gath. Micah didn't make that up. Right? He is quoting King David from when the Philistines killed the then king of Israel, Saul, and his son, Jonathan. Tell it not in Gath. And just like God brought a foreign army back then to judge the sin of his people, so he does it again this time. And just like God brought an end to a kingship, the Saulite dynasty back then, well, we're wondering, is this the end of the Davidic dynasty? Now look at Micah one fifteen. I will again bring a conqueror to you, inhabitants of Marisha. The glory of Israel shall come to Adullam. Adullam, you know Adullam. That's where David had to hide when he was in exile. But now you see, it's not just David who's in exile. It's the entire nation that now goes to their Adullam. And so again, we're left wondering, what about the Davidic king? Point number two, the punishment. Which brings us now to point number three, the prophecy. It's often been said that one of the most important words in the Bible, and we see it all throughout the Bible, is the word but. Uh, that contrastive conjunction, but. Like you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God, who is rich in mercy. And we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, but the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. This is how bad you are, and here's the judgments that you deserve as a result, but here's what God is going to do. That's basically the story of the Bible. And that's exactly what we see here in Micah, right? Micah chapter 5, verse 1. Israel, this is what's going to happen to you because you have sinned against the holy God. Exile, deportation, the once glorious Davidic throne is now completely humiliated, but... Look at the very next verse. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler over Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Not from Jerusalem, where you would expect, but from Bethlehem. And sure, we know Bethlehem is where David came from but it's really one of those places that's more known for being unknown. Joshua chapter 15, it's one of those land allotment chapters, right? It just like lists out a hundred different cities in the boundaries of Judah. Bethlehem is not mentioned. And so really it is too little to be among the clans of Judah. But it's from that little town of Bethlehem that a ruler would come forth for God Uh, the one in whom are met the hopes and fears of all the years. And this ruler is going to be different. He's going to be different than anything that Israel's ever seen. He's different from the other Davidic kings because he's one whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. If you have different versions, you might see from the days of eternity or from everlasting And it's the same Hebrew word that we see in Psalm 90, verse two, before the mountains were brought forth, or wherever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And so how, how can this be, right? How can this be? Look at, look, look at verse two from Bethlehem would come forth a ruler. Well, he's coming forth is from of old. Like, how can this king be from Bethlehem that implies a beginning if he's from everlasting, demanding no beginning? Friends, we know the answer to that. Because in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and the word became flesh. And so you've got the eternally existent king born in Bethlehem. So now it makes sense. Now it makes sense how God could promise to David that he will establish the throne of his kingdom forever while at the same time allowing the kingship to seemingly come to an end with Zedekiah's humbling dethronement. Well, it's because there's this other eternal king, one from everlasting, David's son, yet David's lord, who would sit on the throne forever. forever. You remember what the angel Gabriel said to Mary in Luke chapter 1. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. So you can just see that juxtaposition, that, that stark contrast between Micah chapter five, verse one and Micah chapter five, verse two. That's why we've got that but there. Because on one side, you've got the humiliating fall of the Davidic kingship. And on the other side, you've got the glorious eternal kingdom of the greater David. Now look at verses four and five. What is this son of David going to do? He shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he will be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Micah is speaking to the people of Judah. Now, now you do not dwell secure, because there's Assyrians and there's Babylonians and they're constantly tormenting you. Now you do not have peace because your king's going to be disgraced and you're going to go into exile. But then, when that ruler comes forth from Bethlehem, then you will dwell secure and then you will have peace. Point number three, the prophecy. Not to put a damper on a perfectly good prophecy. But did you notice that there's still a major problem here? Like, great, God's going to send a king, a king for myself, a king who's going to shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. But friends, the problem with Israel isn't just a bad king. Though bad kings were a major problem for Israel. But it's not like, well, if they just had a great ruler, then they would be okay. Then everything would be fine. The problem with Israel, the problem with all mankind for that matter, runs much greater than that. It's our sin. And so even if they were to come out of exile, right out of Babylon, and even if the Assyrians finally leave us alone well, that only really addresses the punishment. It doesn't actually address the problem. And Micah is clear throughout the book, right? The root of all of the disaster that he prophesies, there is one root cause. Micah 1.5, all this, like all of the things that are happening, all of this judgment is for the transgression of Jacob and the sins of the house of Israel. It's transgression and it's sins. That's the problem. And so Micah has one job, Micah 3.8, to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. Again, transgression and sin. That's the problem. That's why all this disaster has befallen them. Micah 6.13, therefore I strike you with a grievous blow, making you desolate because of your sins. And so it's fair to ask, how are things going to be any different under the new king? Under his rule, like under his shepherding? If we're still in our sins, if we still have transgressions that have to be dealt with, how are we going to avoid the judgment that we deserve? Maybe you can relate to this. Maybe you've You an absolute mess of your life because of your sin, because of uh, selfish decisions and actions and words and just a a sinful disregard for God and his law. And you're just kind of reaping what you sowed. You say to yourself, okay, I, I just need a fresh start. So maybe you switch jobs or you move to a different neighborhood or you just go to a different church or you make new commitments. You say, now, now I can be a better person. Now I can live a better life. Now I can pursue a godlier path. And that might work for a short season, but what inevitably happens? Your sin, your transgression, it just rears its ugly head again. And sin, transgression, it once again makes a mess of your life because you've only addressed the outward. You've only addressed the circumstances. You've never addressed the core issue. So back to Micah. Well, Israel, if the root issue is your transgression, if the core of the issue is your sin, is a different king really going to make that much of a difference? How is your sin, how is your transgression ever going to be dealt with? Which brings us to point number four, the praise. And the praise comes in response to the answer to those very questions. I turn to Micah chapter seven, verse 18. So what will become of sin and transgression? Well, the answer Micah 7, 18, is that God pardons iniquity. He passes over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. God himself provides his people with the solution for their sin because of his steadfast love for his people. And so Micah is just dumbfounded and and prays, Who is a God like you? Who is a God like you, asks the prophet whose name means exactly that. Who is a God like you that you should not only send a shepherd king to rule over his people, but he would also somehow make his people ruleable by pardoning their iniquity and passing over their transgression. But you see, this is one of those things like Paul says, the, the mysteries of Christ were made known, uh, not made known to the sons of other generations. That's true of Micah, right? He only knew in part, and so he only prophesied in part. And he saw, like looking forward, he saw only partially what we now see fully looking backwards. Because Micah knew that God himself would provide the pardon for his people's sins, but what he didn't know was how God would accomplish that. But friends, we know, we know that that king of Micah 5 2, that Messiah promised by Micah, that he would not only come to rule over his people, but that he would at first die for his people. And to remove the barrier of sin that separated them from a holy God and made them objects of his judgment. And we know that the reason that God's people can be pardoned of their iniquities and have their transgressions passed over, well, it's because those iniquities and those transgressions were placed upon the sinless shepherd king who died in our place. And we know that the shepherd king of Micah 5.2 would be the good shepherd who lays down his life For the sheep, not only a shepherd, but the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so all of the judgment in this book against sin, you can like picture Jesus taking it upon himself, bearing the full wrath of God for sin in the place of his people. And so what Micah saw in part, we see fully, what christ has done for us on the cross But here's the thing even though micah doesn't see the fullness of the cross he does see a god who forgives the sin of his people and so he cannot help himself he just breaks into praise who is a god like you Look at verse 18, God pardons our iniquity. He passes over our transgression, right? Right, The us there being the remnant of his inheritance, those who would trust in his son. So friends, it's not that God doesn't see your iniquity or you can successfully hide or cover your transgressions from him. He sees everything perfectly he knows everything perfectly and yet he pardons and yet he passes over because of the substitutionary sacrifice of his son who is a god like you and he doesn't retain his anger forever because his anger for our sin was poured out on christ fully paid for and notice how none of this is done like Reluctantly or begrudgingly or unwillingly. No, he does it because he delights. He delights in steadfast love. He abounds in steadfast love. This God who saves sinners according to the good pleasure of his will, who is a God like you? Verse 19. He treads our iniquities underfoot, right? He tramples down our iniquities. The word picture there is of subduing an enemy. That's exactly what Jesus did when he crushed the head of the serpent. This God who has conquered our sin on our behalf so that we might be more than conquerors through him who loved us, who is a God like you? And he casts all our sins into the depths of the sea. It's not like he just... Drops them in there that they might resurface one day to haunt us again. But it's into the depths of the sea, as in gone forever. That word depths, it's also used in the book of Exodus to describe how the Egyptians were sunk into the depths of the Red Sea. And what does God say? The Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. Well, it's the same thing with our sins. God deals with them finally and completely on the cross so that we shall never see them again. And so we ask with Micah, who is a God like you? Verse 20, we can be confident that all this is true because our God is a covenant-keeping God who cannot lie. Uh, The promises that he made to Jacob and Abraham and all the promises of God, 2 Corinthians 1, find their yes and there are amen in Jesus. And so we say with Micah, who is a God like you? Point number four, the praise. So that's the book of Micah. Those are the four kind of big themes that I see running through the book of Micah. Let me finish with just two words of exhortation. The first, Don't miss the point. Don't miss the point. As one of my favorite preachers would say, the point of the Bible is Jesus. (laughs) I would add to that, the point of the book of Micah is Jesus. And so friends, don't miss the point. You're all familiar with the story, right? After Jesus is born, some wise men from the East come to worship him King Herod gets word of this, and so it says he's troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Everybody's troubled, so he calls for the foremost religious experts of the day, all the chief priests and scribes of the people, and he inquires of them, where is the Christ to be born? Matthew 2, five. they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it was written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. If you've been paying attention tonight, you know that's Micah chapter 5, verses 2 and 4. And we come across that account every December. We say, wow, isn't it amazing how Micah's prophecy was so perfectly fulfilled in Jesus, like how God's providence, right? How that brought Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem because of the decree of Caesar Augustus. And we say, that is amazing. Yes and amen. But you know what else is amazing? That you've got these religious experts, these guys who know their Old Testament front to back, Like, they have the book of Micah down cold. They plainly see that the Messiah is to be born in Bethlehem, and they know that there are others who are going to worship him, but they do nothing. It was just information for them. For so it is written by the prophet and so they're, they're familiar with these glorious truths from Micah, but their hearts are completely unchanged. And of course, it was the next generation of those same people, right, the chief priests and the scribes, who would put to death the Messiah from Bethlehem, the Messiah that they themselves knew about but would not believe in. Here's the thing. It's not just the religious elite of Jesus' day. All the people knew. John chapter seven. This is the crowds, the multitudes talking. Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So how'd you know that? They knew the book of Micah. But that is a tragedy. Because these people, they knew Micah, but they didn't get the point of Micah. They knew Micah, but they didn't know Jesus. And friends, what's true of them? Well, it can be true of us as well. It is entirely possible for us to know the book of Micah, inside and outside, but entirely miss the point of the book of Micah, which is Jesus. I say all that to point out that there are some of you sitting here tonight, like you know everything that you need to know about the Christ. You know the prophecies about him. You know the gospel. You know who Jesus is. You know what he accomplished. But it's just information, information. And now you've come tonight and and you've heard this sermon on Micah and hopefully you know a little bit more about the book now than you did when you came here. But it's just information. For so it is written by the prophet. Don't let that be you. There is a God who delights in steadfast love. And he has clearly displayed that steadfast love in sending his son to die for sinners like me and like you. Right, that our sins might be cast into the depths of the sea. But friend, all that means nothing for your eternity unless you would look to him and be saved today. So come to the end of yourself. Cry out. Cry out to the prophesied ruler from Jerusalem, from Bethlehem. Trust in his death. Trust in his resurrection for the pardoning of your iniquity. And then and only then will you have understood the point of the book of Micah. Because the point of the book of Micah is Jesus. Don't miss the point. My second exhortation is for those of us in this room. We have looked to this awesome, pardoning God. We do know his salvation in Christ my exhortation to you is to use more exclamation points. Let me explain what I mean by that. I think it's all too easy, especially for those of us who've been saved for a while. And it's all too easy for us to begin to take the wonders of the gospel for granted. And the character of God becomes like this topic of study more than a cause for rejoicing from our hearts. And the doctrines of the gospel, they they become just theological ideas that are uh, to be dissected more than a glorious truth to be pondered. And we begin to think that we are somehow entitled to grace, that we are somehow entitled to the forgiveness of our sins. But friends, I just want all of us to just take a step back And just think about this. The fundamental truth of Christianity, that God forgives sins, that's crazy. That's just outrageous. Like, what makes you think that God is going to forgive you of all of the horrible and wicked things that you have done to offend him? makes you think that God is going to forgive you again this week for the same thing that you did last week? We can't even forget our own sins. Other people don't let things go. What makes you think that a holy and omniscient God, one who knows your sin deeper and more truly better than anyone else, makes you think that he is actually going to wipe away your sins. That's crazy. But he does, and he will, because of Christ. Right? He does, and he will, because he delights in steadfast love. He does, and he will, just like he said in his word. God forgives our sins because of Jesus. That is a truth that some of you in this room, like you've known this since your childhood, but don't ever let the familiarity with that truth diminish, the wonder, the awe, the glory that it should stir in your heart. And so brothers and sisters, let's use more exclamation points Like, we can read uh, verses like Micah chapter 7, like we're reading a genealogy. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. You really think that's how Micah meant it? Like, if I'm understanding this book correctly, that is not how Micah wrote it. You study the book. Micah is not one of those emotionally detached people, right? Chapter one, verse eight. He's lamenting. He's wailing for his people's sins. Look at chapter seven, verse one. Woe is me for the transgressions of my people. Chapter seven, verse nine. I will bear their indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him. Uh, Micah, this is a guy who knows his sins. He knows his people's sins. He knows the righteous judgment they deserve, but he also knows that his God is a God who forgives the sin of his people. And so at the end of his book, right, his heart is just exploding with joy. Like, who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of, for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Exclamation point. Brothers and sisters, I know that God has wired each of us differently. Some of us are just more emotional and excitable than others, and that's okay. But brothers and sisters, if this doesn't excite you, like if this does not thrill your soul, if this doesn't like just come to you with exclamation points all over the place, that God in Christ actually forgives you of everything wrong that you've ever done. That he actually delights in showing steadfast love to you. That he actually casts all of your sins into the depths of the sea, never again to be held against you. Wow, well, I, I just don't know what will. Father in heaven, who is a God like you? It is unfathomable to us that you would forgive us of all of our sin and our iniquity that we have committed against you. You are a holy God. You are righteous in judgment. And yet, you pass over our transgressions. You cast our sins into the depths of the sea because of Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you would stir in your people just a glorious affection for this wonderful truth. Who is... A God like you, we ask all this in Jesus' name, amen.